You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When we set several theologies next to each other, naming their core claims helps us to make sense of their relationships. Even as we grant that more complexity rewards careful reading and study, so without necessarily reducing them to these phrases, we can speak and write about Calvin's theology of sovereignty, Schleiermacher's theology of experience, Bultmann's theology of kerygma, Thomas Aquinas's theology of revelation, and so on. In his book, Theology of Consent from Sacrosage, Jonathan Foster proposes a certain notion of consent, borrowing elements from René Girard's mimetic theory and others from Alfred North Whitehead's process thought to make a bid for our understanding of the ways in which we engage with God. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Foster to talk to us about some of these ideas. Thanks for coming on board, Jonathan. Okay, Nathan, thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Foster, that doesn't sound right, but uh, <laughs> but I suppose that goes with the territory. You are welcome to call me Jonathan. I'm glad to be on and uh, we, we'll have some fun today. I really appreciate it. Excellent, excellent. Well, this book sets out to bring the written work of René Girard and Alfred North Whitehead, along with constellations of their interlocutors and interpreters, to bear on certain theological questions. So let's start with those questions. What are a few of the big inquiries that this book sets out to address, even if tentatively? Sure. Uh, well, there are a lot of big questions here, in part because I personally have too many questions. And also in part because, as you rightly said, I'm trying to dialogue with Rene Girard and also, you know, Whiteheadian influenced open relational theology. And these these folks, they bring so much good thinking. Um, it just it can't help but stir up a bunch of stuff. So I'm trying on one level. Really, I recognize on a personal level, I'm trying to answer questions probably about theodicy, evil. Why do bad things happen? My particular theological journey really got kickstarted um, after going through some intense personal loss. And I'm, I'm really still trying to you know, figure out what all of that means. And as I was trying to figure that out, I got introduced to Girard a few years ago. That was super helpful. Then I got introduced to Tom Ward, Open and Relational Theology. That was super helpful. So I, I decided to bring them together um, but to answer your question, what are the big questions? Yeah, like where is God and what is God up to and what might be the truest, maybe the best thing we could say about God? And and who are we in the midst of all of this? And <laughs> and what the heck does all of this mean? You know, all those big kinds of questions. That sounds like a good set of questions. And listeners, uh as some of you know, uh, Tom Ord has been on this show before. If you want to search in the uh, our Castos page, just search for his last name, O-O-R-D. And, uh, you know, I as I was telling Jonathan earlier, uh, I got to spend some time with Tom Ward this weekend at Theology Beer Camp. So I, I uh, it, it was kind of wall-to-wall process theology. So I'm kind of geared up for this interview. So Good. Uh, you, but, you probably got a lot better uh, theologians there to explain it than me. So I'm glad. I, I, I like you too, Jonathan. So we'll, we're, we're going to keep rolling. We're going to start with Gerard. And I've read a couple of Gerard's books, namely uh, Violence in the Sacred and I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. So I had some familiarity with his main projects when I read your book. But for our readers who haven't had that exposure, uh, what does Gerard mean when he writes about mimetic desire? Yeah, so Girard um, comes out of this. He's a French-American intellectual, and he comes from this really great line of thinking, I suppose if you're French and you're an intellectual, you automatically come from a great line of like psychodynamics and philosophy. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of all of that. And he has a super fascinating back, background in history a lot of people don't even, aren't even aware of. But um, so, so he builds upon maybe like Jacques Lacan, certainly Freud and, and Hegel, some of that kind of thinking regarding desire. And the idea is Essentially, we live in a uh, mimetic universe. Mimetic is, uh, means imitation. It's shorthand for imitation. And we live in, so we live in a relational, imitative universe where we're, you know, the context is never, I just decide on my own what I want. It's not even possible. 
And so he, his entire theory is built upon the idea that my desires are mediated by your desires. I don't know what I want until I see what you want. And you are kind of the same way. And so this, um, this is kind of the foundation a little bit of where his whole theory kind of takes off from. Very good, very good. Now, Gerard holds that the crucifixion, Jesus on the cross, reverses the action of the scapegoat. Uh, so, you know, you can talk about what a scapegoat is if you want to, but sure. what Jesus does is invites the faithful neither to distance ourselves from the sacrifice uh, by shunning or to elevate, uh, you know, the sacrifice to a sort of divine status, which also distances the sacrifice, but rather to identify with the sacrifice in solidarity. So that's what happens liturgically and even psychologically with the crucifixion. Uh, but I'd like to hear you talk about another question that's related to those. For Girard, does the crucifixion do anything in terms of divine economy, the ways in which God relates to mortals? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, Girard himself, you know, when he started really uncovering or discovering, depending on what word you want to use, the scapegoating mechanism built on mimetic desire, he wasn't a professing believer. Um, like all good French intellectuals, you know, he was a, he was an atheist or a, certainly an unbeliever. But the more he, um, the more this this truth seemed to reveal itself to him, the more he connected the dots between his uh, somewhat Catholic upbringing and recognizing that, oh my gosh, there's all this overlap and that um, this Jesus person uh, maybe says something about all of this. So, so you're right for Girard, um, Jesus subverts the scapegoating mechanism, kind of un, yeah, undoes it uh, because he, in solidarity with us and in solidarity with God, so this is certainly not something where, it's not a theory or an idea where um, he thinks that God made Jesus or needed Jesus to do this. So Jesus in solidarity um, with the mechanisms of the world voluntarily uh, lays his life down in order to, you know, to be like the spoke inserted into the wheel of injustice. So it's a really beautiful thing. Um, and it's worth, <laughs> it's worth excavating all the, the deep uh, mystery that that Girard begins to see happening with Jesus. But to your question, the divine economy, I would say in short, no, though he does, he, he does become a devout Catholic. And um, I've wondered about how he, what was going through his mind sometimes when he was in math and how that all played out. But in short, no, I don't think Girard thought that Jesus needed to die in order to you know, enter into any kind of transactional anything that might um, change God's mind towards us. I think he's, I think he thinks that, um, although he doesn't use this language as much, but that God is love and that Jesus is, is revealing God's love rather than dying as a requirement of some kind of metaphysical, you know, debt or need to pay off God. Right, right. So in Gerard's formulation of things, why do the mechanisms of sacrifice and scapegoating end up futile? This is, this is a related question, not exactly the same, but I mean, what eventually brings uh, scapegoating and sacrifice to become useless? Mm. Well, before they're useless, they're really effective. Uh, that's, what's, that's what's so interesting. Um, I'm glad that you've read some of this stuff. I encourage your listeners, if they haven't, many of them are probably familiar with Gerard, to uh, dive into his stuff. Um, maybe it would be good. I don't know if you want to get into this now or later. Maybe it'd be good to maybe just briefly sequence kind of the scapegoating mechanism. To, yeah, go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do that. And and that way I can we can kind of build Gerard's case for why it works, and then you can see why it doesn't work. And I'll try to be as brief as I can. There, there's obviously a bunch of subpoints, but um, but as we already said, it, it's built upon desire, and it's also built upon this recognition that all of us humans seem to have. This seems to be a common denominator with, with many of us or all of us, is that like I'm really aware of my own shortcomings. I'm really aware of my own, the philosopher might say, lack. I have an intense awareness of the lack. And so um, in that, that's kind of the backdrop uh, 
out of which all this plays. And so then my desires, you know, because we live in a relational cosmos, my desires are being mediated by the other. So my, I, I begin to desire what my model desires. Our entire marketing industry is built on this, right? I mean, no one shows you the car that you want to drive. They show you the car that your model wants to drive. And they present your model as someone who, I mean, of course, they don't say this and you don't think these exact words, but the idea they present them as someone who has it all together, has no lack. So here I am thinking, gosh, I I'm lacking so much. Well, look at this guy. He's a little bit better looking than me, or maybe a lot better looking. He's more fluent. He's got it all together. So I want what he wants. So desire leads to imitation. Um, my, my model also becomes a subject in all of this and recognizes the attention I'm giving to something. So they begin to reciprocate and model back. And there's a doubling that goes on. And what Girard says is that inevitably leads to conflict. So desire leads to imitation, leads to conflict. And then the remedy of our conflict, and I've skipped over a few things, but the remedy is at some point, me and the person that I'm having conflict with, we decide, you know what, it's really not about us. It's really about, and we turn and point our fingers at someone else. And then we offload all of our psycho-spiritual drama onto the backs of someone else. And then that justifies our getting rid of them, excommunicating, voting them off the island, throwing them in the volcano, lynching them, murdering, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're really good at scapegoating. So, um, and I'm still, I'm still going to answer your question. The reason we do all of that, well, there's a bunch of, you know, nefarious reasons why we do it. But one reason we do all of this is because scapegoating works. It helps us process our violence. And then as we continue to, do it, it helps us create order because in a way we're getting rid of the anomaly. Uh, we're getting rid of something that's different than us so that um, so that we can unify together and get rid of other stuff. Um, that's a simplistic way of saying it, but it helps us to, to maintain order. Okay, so scapegoating works. That's the, that's the idea. Now to your question, but it never lasts. It doesn't work permanently. So what Girard says is that eventually conflict builds back up. It almost has to because we we live in this relational context with all these things going on. And so at that moment, what we do is we turn to it again. And it's it's the returning to it. And then we layer the next time we do it, you know, we layer it with a new, you know, set of liturgy, prayers, songs, pledges, whatever the case might be, creeds. Um, and we keep returning to it over and over because it never really lasts. The point, I think, of Jesus, one of the points is that he, he becomes a scapegoat to end all scapegoating, to reveal this entire absurd, ridiculous, dysfunctional thing that we've created and to say, no, that's not what God needs. It's not what humans need. Um, and so he helps us see, love helps us see that um, it's a futile thing. Um, even though we're we're really we're pretty conditioned at this point to to keep repeating it. All right, good, good. Sorry, good. that was a that was a lot of stuff, but I was no, 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 no. That's a, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. Um, we're going to return to Gerard, but let's let's turn and set up the Whitehead side of this so that we can combine the two uh, down the road a little ways. Uh, I haven't read as much Whitehead as I have I have Gerard, but I have been listening to Trip Fuller wax enthusiastic about Whitehead for more than a decade, so I'll have a run at it anyway. The God that Whitehead presents, not unlike the God that Augustine praises in his Trinitarian writings, is not a God who mainly pushes things forward, but mainly a God whose goodness and truth and beauty attract all rational beings, uh, both Whitehead and Augustine knew their Plato, and inspire those rational beings to forge ahead ourselves. Uh, God activates our desires rather than being the efficient cause of things. What other elements of Whitehead's theology proper are going to be important for our conversation? Yeah, Whitehead was a um, brilliant thinker ahead of his time, for sure. You know, talking about someone who 100 years ago, he was a mathematician and a philosopher. You know, was writing about things that are so incredibly true today. And I'm, you know, even after three years of of really the best way to say it is Whiteheadian influenced open and relational. So I wasn't strictly reading just Whitehead, but even after, you know, 
three years of bouncing, banging my head against the wall, trying to figure out all this stuff. I, I, you know, I'm still oh, learning. Oh, and, and listeners, just in case you've never attempted Whitehead, yeah. it is some dense philosophical prose. That's right. It is dense philosophical prose. So, but um, yeah. So the question was, what what is Whitehead introduced? into this subject. Um, yeah, I mean, what what parts of his theology proper? So yeah. in other words, his philosophy of the nature of God, what parts are going to be most relevant for the combination that we're going to talk about later? Very good. Um, what I intuited from the beginning was this idea that um, that Whitehead or open and relational theology in general was really suspicious of this top-down, you know, capital O, omnipotent, um, God's in charge coming outside of space and time to kind of order things and fix things in such a way, well, it presents a lot of problems, but specifically as it relates to Girard in such a way that sacrifice itself should be something that we label as redemptive. And it's, it's the way Whitehead lays some of this out and presents power as being relational power over against authoritative power that helps me see the common denominators, even though Gerard's using completely different language and asking different questions. It helps me to see the common denominators between the two. And I found that to be um, really, really meaningful and helpful. And I, I love that stuff about open relational theology, helping me clarify, at least for me, the idea that, um, yeah, that sacrifice, by the way, it's still a word in the Bible and it's still something we kind of have to wrestle with. And so I do some of that in my work too, where I try to extrapolate and pull it apart. But that um, in and of itself, it's not something the divine needs to give us grace. That might be one thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I guess the other thing that, you know, I'm interested in is the idea that, um, and again, I see this as, as you know, Whitehead's Platonism coming out, right? That, uh, mm. you know, uh, if I can borrow some words from ancient theology, from ancient, you know, philosophy and medieval theology that Whitehead himself might not like very much, but it makes sense to me uh, that God is not the efficient cause of things. So in other words, God does not push things from behind, but rather um, rational beings for the medievals and really all being for Whitehead desires to surge ahead towards God so that God is a kind of uh, final cause more than a an efficient cause. Does that does that distinction make some sense? I think so. I'm not sure final quite works because it Well, yeah, 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 I know, but the, the all that medieval vocabulary yeah, people get yeah, nervous yeah. about. <laughs> right. Somehow in Whiteheadian influenced open relational theology, the divine is like in the present and is pulling us into the present and encouraging us luring, you know, that's a great whitehead word. I like invitation yep, yep. better than lure. Um, there's this constant um, movement uh, again, it's, it, but it's relational. It's heavily infused within each and every moment. And so you're right. It's not this idea of someone uh, from behind who has all these predetermined ideas and, um, you know, starts the dominoes. Uh, neither is it someone that starts the dominoes and then halfway through says, Oh, wow, Jonathan just screwed that up. I've got to step out of my, metaphysical space and time location and and refix it it's this deeply complex way of seeing the divine wrapped up in a multiplicity of ways that all of this stuff can go and it's a bit mind-boggling at times but also for me um, really really helpful in trying to work through randomness and chance and all the aleatory things that happen in life and and so there's a multiplicity of ways that stuff could go. So I, I love all that stuff. And and Whitehead did, he loved some stuff about Plato. I mean, there was definitely some things, not least of which is Plato. And this is probably something I didn't know um, before I started this work. You know, Plato was really, um, was one of the first, maybe the first person to talk about the relational power. He didn't use those words, but the understated power of a God or of the divine and that Whitehead sees in this person from Galilee, this person of Jesus. And so he's he really esteems uh, Platonic thought in that way. In other ways, he doesn't, like the dualism of Plato, he's not he's not into. But in that right, he is. Right, so. yeah. 
and and I teach the uh, Republic of Plato with some regularity and the Symposium with some regularity. So that 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 idea of you know the desire for the eternal uh, is definitely just all over the place in those dialogues and other Platonic dialogues, but those happen to be two where it's especially pronounced. Now I do have a question that I want to pose to you so that you can uh, make an apologia for uh, open relational for our listeners who are uh, somewhat skeptical, and that has to do with your 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 phrase on page 82 of the book that asks, you know, what kind of God is worthy of faith? Uh, perhaps I'm just too steeped in medieval Christian theology and poetry for my own good. We already mentioned that. Uh, but why is it that open and relational folks think it's a good idea to demand that God audition for us? Hmm. Um, well, a couple of questions. First of all, what was the word? Opal, what was that word? Open and relational. No, no, no. You, when you said offer an opalologia. Oh, apologia. Apologia. A defense. A defense. Nice. See, I'm learning new okay, words sorry. today. That's good. I, that, that is the name of another platonic dialogue that I teach with some regularity. So uh, okay. it's, it's, should... it's part of my, uh, sub. I guess, you know, unreflective vocabulary, and I sometimes forget <laughs> about that. No, man, I'm just trying to learn as we go along. All there. right. Right on. Right on. Okay. So <laughs> first of all, I want to say open and relational wouldn't demand anything. You know, I especially in, in this writing that I'm here, like it's called Theology of Consent. I am wanting to invite everyone to enter into this consensual thing that I think is going on. So I have no desire you know, to demand um, that people see it a particular way. Um, for me personally, a lot of this stuff has been super helpful and I would even say healthy because it's allowed me to work through in my older, more structured system, I wasn't allowed to work through some of these questions. And so the, the relational power of the divine has given me new eyes to kind of see where this is coming from and where it might be going and in and, and each and every moment. So I hope not to uh, I hope not to baggage them too much. Having said all that, um, what is it that you think that open and relational are demanding from folks? You said Oh, not about. demanding of people, demanding of God that God auditioned for us. Yeah, what are do you, you mean? Are, you, mean are, are you worthy of being worshipped, God? Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I guess here's what I'm thinking of, you know, Dante's Purgatory, which is a poem that I've loved and I've taught and I've thought about and I've meditated on and it's shaped me, poses the question from line one to the final line of the poem, you know, what does it mean for someone to desire the God who reveals God's self, right? Mm. And there's never a question of, you know, is the God who reveals God's self worthy to be worshipped? That's just kind of assumed right? Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't call whoever that being is God, right? Uh, One thing that I see, you know, not just in your book, but also in Tom Ward's work, also in Trip Fuller's work, also in a lot of, you know, open relational kinds of theologies is uh, that, you know, the main, one of the main questions, I won't say the main question, but one of the main questions is, uh, you know, uh, does this God pass our audition? Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. So more of like, um, well, I'll just, I'll say, I guess I'll, I'll say it this way. The, the God that I was conditioned to believe in that kind of God. Um, yeah, there was this, certainly this idea that that, that question never even came to my mind. Like it wasn't allowed to even exist in my former way of thinking. Like it didn't matter. You know, this is who God was. God was clearly this omnipotent again, uh, person who, uh, is the is the you know first cause of everything, and there's there's no reason to doubt any of that. And so when things happen that didn't align with what I thought, and I'm, I'm using air quotes, what I thought made sense or what I thought love might um, might choose for me, I had no other recourse other than to say, oh well, this was God's will. This is because I mean God could have God could have done something different, and He didn't. Um, and so everything kind of happens for a reason, you know, that God pulls these levers and pushes certain buttons and, and everything plays out that way. And I think, is that kind of God worthy of worship? At some point, it's, it's disconcerting to me that that has been the only model of God. Well, it's not been the only, but that's the primary model. And so now the world just thinks and we all think that, well, you know, when bad things happen, then. That's just the way that it's supposed to be. And we can question it a little bit, but after a while, 
normally what happens is we are told we have to retreat behind the idea that, well, it's all a mystery in the end. Anyhow, we can't really figure it out. Yeah. And that's interesting. And, and, you know, this is a conversation that I've had with Tom Ward a number of times mm-hmm. is that, you know, uh, that maneuver doesn't bother me nearly as much as it does him. And, you know, part of it is that, uh, you know, the, I think the mystery of, part. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think the reason is that, you know, I think of infinity as one of the predicates for God. And so therefore, you know, I mean, if I find myself incapable of processing these relationships between, you know, God and mortals, uh, you know, my, my working assumption is that, you know, perhaps one day I'll grow into a better understanding of it, but it's, it's, it's not a natural impulse for me. I'll put it that way. And that's probably a bad phrase for it, but it's not a natural impulse for me to say, um, we need to reformulate God so that it better suits my moral taste. And I, and I realize that's kind of a caricature, but I don't know how to phrase it without caricaturing. Does, does that yeah. make some sense? Yeah, I, I could see why you're saying that. Um, I would say, first of all, with regard to the mystery piece, I, I've, I've gotten that a lot. Um, and it's funny to me because it seems like all of us are wrestling with it to some degree. Some folks, you know, on a scale of one to 10, for example, may only get to a two before they automatically start to think, oh, well, gosh, this is way bigger than me. I can't figure it out anyhow, so I'm just going to trust. Others of us, you know, we wrestle with these things a lot longer, so we might go to a three, four, five, six, whatever, and that doesn't mean we're better. It just, you know, in fact, in some ways, I would choose not to have to be that kind of person. I'd rather have the, you know, the simplest mindset at times. Um, but either way, we we re- arrive there too. And so for me personally, it's, I just keep wrestling with it and before I get to that mystery part, like what, what seems to make the most sense to me, a, a God that has already got this stuff planned out, if that's if what we're talking about, maybe it's predetermined stuff, or a God who is um, in the midst of the moment in real time, in love, coming up with new ideas, even as things unfold, like what's a, what's a harder thing to do? For me, it's, it's a harder thing to be in the midst in real time and to actually interact and genuinely be moved and influenced rather than it is to kind of be this, uh, to take, you know, more classical language, like this impassable, uninfluenceable, sovereign God who's already got it figured out. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to necessarily say, oh, that that old God, he has to audition, you know, and he, that's, that's bad for me. It's just like, oh, this seems like a healthier, freer, move that still reserves, you know, um, gives me the space to make choices and decisions, even as God is making choices and decisions in the middle of all of it. So I've just found it to be like freedom. Uh, that's a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm going to take a small detour here. Okay. Why did you have to take a pot shot at John Levinson? <laughs> uh, I so seldom see anyone even make reference to his books and I enjoy them so much. I mean, they discuss biblical responses to evil so frankly compared to a lot of Christian theologies, uh, to a lot of Christian exegesis, frankly. And they're such a breath breath of fresh air to me. So why John Levinson? (laughs) Sorry, man. I wonder what your, uh, I've thought, I wonder what your definition of pot shot is. I don't, like to me, that, that the connotation is like just, for no reason, you're just driving down the road and you're just throwing stuff at people. Oh, I, I've I've just and never seen a reference to John Levinson in any other open and relational books. So I'm interesting. Thinking, okay, if you had to pick a fight, like what? what Why like him? You pick a fight with John Calvin. Like he's a, <laughs> he's, a, he's a big target. Right. <laughs> Why'd right. you have to go after John Levinson? <laughs> yeah. Any anybody can fight with Calvin. Like I, <laughs> I, that's not hard. For some reason, I picked the hard ones. Well, look. Um, first of all. I apologize. And John Levins is probably... No, you don't have to apologize. I'm messing with you. (laughs) um, He, uh, I, and I have only read the one book that I, that I lifted the quote from. And I think what I'm doing there is I'm trying to like build this case, so to speak, though I don't really love that language, where I'm reinforcing the idea that even when um, theologians that I kind of like, in this case, Levinson says a lot of good things, it feels even then that at times, eventually he retreats back to that. Oh, well, it kind of doesn't really matter because God is this master power 
over everything. And I, I guess I just um, <laughs> I react to that kind of that kind of language. And I want to say that well, maybe there's a maybe there's a better and a healthier way to look at all this. So um, yeah, I think I, I situated that quote in the midst of several other quotes, and just trying to kind of highlight how a lot of predominant thinking, you know, a lot of our predominant theology that's been handed to us is one that reinforces capital O omnipotence. And I'm not really into capital O omnipotence. All right. All right. At this point, I want to tee you up and let you expand a bit. We've established Gerard's thought. We've established uh, open relational thought. Uh, how does theology begin to answer the questions we posed at the outset when the projects of Rene Girard and the projects of Alfred North Whitehead are both setting the agenda together. And you can be as expansive as you want on this. This, this is where you give us your constructive theology. <laughs> I don't know how constructive it is. Um, I feel like Girard gives us a really interesting inroad and angle to get to love. I don't think Gerard necessarily set out to write about love, but um, to me, love is the most interesting thing and not just a watered down, um, you know, a word of love in our English language. Unfortunately, we use love, you know, like I love my wife. I love going to the mountains. I love Taco Bell. Uh, you know, we use the word. Or Yokiero Taco Bell, if you're old enough to remember that. Yokiero, there you go. Uh, you know, we use it for a lot of different things. And so a lot of my work has been trying to, you know, reframe and redefine what love is. And so when I think of love, I think of non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating. And then, of course, I have to throw Tom's definition in. It's this intentional move in relationship to God and to others that's for well-being. So when I say this little four-letter word, love, all these other, you know, it, it, it amplifies all these other things that are going on in my life. I think Gerard gives us a really intelligent way to see how Jesus is pursuing love and pursuing the invitation that love's laid out for him in the middle of all of it versus this whole other way of looking at it, which is that it's all been pre-programmed and that, you know, God needs a sacrifice and that humans are you know, hopelessly screwed up without some bloodshed. None of that feels or seems like love to me. It just seems like some kind of transactional game that needs to be played. And so Gerard really helps me get to love. Open and relational theology really helps me uh, get to love. And by the way, I'm not trying to suggest that people who don't agree with me who are who aren't open and relational theologians, you know, aren't interested in love. I, I would never say that. Um, it's, it's just, um, it's helped me kind of reframe it. Love, I think the best thing we can say about God is that God is love and that the fundamental characteristic of love is consent. Consent has become extremely important to me. Just this whole idea of agency and autonomy. And I find the ways that um, love interacts with chance and randomness and toho vabohu from Genesis 1-2 and all those kinds of things to be a really honorable way to enter into all of that without slotting God into this person who has to fix everything in my life, but also without slotting myself into a place where, you know, where I know all the answers. I don't necessarily have it all together. So I'm trying to lean on God, even as I think God is leaning on us. That might be a way of saying it. Um, so yeah, to me, it's it's all about trying to excavate the depths of love and both of these things have helped me do that. All right. I want to pose a question about uh, prayer in the context of this, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I appreciate about medieval theology is that uh, the best medieval theology, and I won't say all medieval theology because there's no such thing as all med medieval theology. The medieval theology was a big debate. Uh, but writers like Boethius, writers like Thomas Aquinas, present a contradiction between human responsibility and divine knowledge. And, you know, their answer to it is not to resolve it, not to get rid of the contradiction, uh, but to, you know, counsel a, a life of discipline and prayer, uh, you know, so that we can live inside of that contradiction 
rather than trying to resolve it. And in my view, and I've had this conversation with Trip Fuller before, so uh, Trip, if you're listening to this, you've heard this before. Um, in my view, I mean, I think that, you know, what leaves me unsatisfied about Calvin and what leaves me unsatisfied about a lot of open relational thought is that they try to have their theology without contradictions. And, mm. you know, uh, because I've tasted the the strong stuff, if you will, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I want to keep both of those. And one of the reasons why is that, you know, I, I do have a strong sense of revelation. And, you know, I do think that, you know, those narratives like the Exodus, like First Samuel, where God does stuff, I, I want those to be part of my theology, as well as those parts of the, of the scriptures where God empowers the human agent to do stuff. So, you know, uh, in your view, and again, I'm, I'm springing this on you because I don't think this is in my written notes, uh, is this, you know, just a difference of taste? Or, you know, are there things that, that really fall apart spiritually, ethically, in other important ways uh, if we don't get rid of the contradictions? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I really like contradictions, too. Um, and I find a lot of beauty in living in them. You know, when I first started this project, when Tom and I first started this together, I was thinking I was going to get into Hegelian kind of contradiction kind of stuff. It, and I still might do some stuff later. It turns out I just had a whole bunch of other work to do. Yeah, I, I haven't said Hegel yet, have I? No, 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 you have Okay, okay, oh, no. good, because you, usually I can't make it very far in a podcast before I do. So you were the <laughs> really? first one to mention him. Oh, good. I want our, I want our listeners to know yep. that. Yep, <laughs> good for you. Way, way to restrain yourself. <laughs> That's good. Keep rolling, man, keep That's rolling. That's right. And, and I, 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 I toy with it, like even at the end of Theology of Consent, I write about, um, you know, the H-O-L-E inside of the W-H-O-L-E, which yep, is... Yep you know, Hegelian kind of stuff, or at least people who've read Hegelian, uh, read Hegel. Um, so I love contradiction. So I, I hope uh, what I'm doing is not trying to iron out all of that. And for me personally, I really got heavily introduced to contradiction when I began to meditate on the idea that beauty and joy are not mutually exclusive. They seem to be wrapped up together. And so love and pain and woundedness all of that for me now is all part and parcel of the same thing. By the way, side note, Tom and I have talked about this a little bit. He he doesn't necessarily want to see it the same way as I do, but I don't think we've we haven't. Did he warn you about me? He did not. No, no, no. Oh, huh? okay, okay. No, no. I, <laughs> no. no. Well, when I saw him this weekend, I uh, when I introduced people to him because I kept bringing people to him. I said, "You got to yeah. meet Tom Ward. He's awesome. Yeah. I don't agree with him, but he's the most awesome theologian you're going to meet." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, I'm incorrigible, but he still loves me. So yeah, that's I right. mean, you that's know, good. that's good. <laughs> keep rolling, keep rolling. That's Sorry. Good. Yeah, Tom's a good guy. Um, so he he and I still haven't uh probably figured out what we think totally on this. But anyway, I just want to steam contradiction. Uh and then to the other part of your question, does God do things? I still think God does things. I think open and relational theology thinks God does things. What I don't think is that God single-handedly does things. I think it's always in relationship. I think the nature of reality is suggesting to us, biblically, scientifically, my own uh, experience, that everything is done in relationship. And the moment I go to, well, God can single-handedly do something, it, it literally changes everything for me. So then I'm like, well, why isn't more stuff being done then? You know, why do we, why did we have uh, and do we have the pain that we have, which I know probably critics of open and relational theology say, well, then, you know, their next move is, well, then who are you to judge, you know, God and, and um, which is a, which is a fair thing, but that, that's the, that's the, that's my response. It's basically, I think every, I think God is working actively and is the most powerful agent in the cosmos. I just don't think that she or he does it single-handedly. And if, and if she does, I have a lot of questions for her and okay. whatever that means, I'm just a human, but I still have a lot of questions. That's fair enough. Now in the closing run of the book, you make a strange lexical request that I want you to expand on a bit. 
uh, given the work in New Testament studies that has rightly, I think, posited apocalyptic as the symbolic narrative and moral matrix in which the gospel writers and Paul and other writers are doing their work, why would you call on theologians to excise the word apocalypse from their uh, vocabularies? You're asking good questions, man. Oh, can... thank you. Thank you. I've, I've worked hard to uh, craft them. Yeah. Oh, I can tell when people have read it or have have the acumen to to even ask good questions. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So what what was the main question again? Sorry, I got. Yeah. Why, why why do you want us to stop saying apocalypse? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now now I've said it. You've made me say it twice. I just want right. to know. Right. I was only going to say it once because you asked me not to say it. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I I just toyed with the idea. To in fairness, I didn't say I. I was just kind of like thinking in real time as I was writing out like, oh, I'd like to strike this from our language. So in fairness, ultimately, I didn't say you can't use it anymore because. OK, OK. Because obviously so, I realized jo Jonathan Foster is not the language police. That's right, because that's where <laughs> that's where the whole thing was going. It was going towards censorship. And of course, you know, there's no end to that. There so, you go. Um, I begrudgingly, I like reluctantly, I, I have to leave apocalypse in. but then. Uh, but the reason I was thinking about that, and then I, I tried to explain this a little bit in the writing, is because I think so much damage has been done misusing apocalyptic ideas and the the traditional theistic. Um, and sorry if I'm overgeneralizing, but you know the classical tradition has conditioned us to think that you know that apocalypse is this singular event that's going to happen in the future that you know is going to usher in what god's kingdom and it's going to be violent and bloody first of all i mean you already know this and probably a lot of your listeners do apocalypse itself has to do with an unveiling and it it doesn't have to do anything with a bloody war and what i find is a lot of folks who subscribe to you know this powerful hammer wielding capital o omnipotent god in their back pocket eventually it, when it, did Chris Hensworth come into this? <laughs> no, sorry, keep rolling, keep rolling. No, no, I, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned Thor in the in the writing too, so he's he's in there, man. Um, yeah, they kind of keep that in their back pocket. It's like when all else fails, well, you know, uh, God's going to come back at some point and set everything straight. And and I don't think that that's necessarily the best or healthiest way to read all of this. Uh, I think rather that there's constantly these unveilings that are going on moment by moment, and what's being unveiled is that love is interested is not interested in an apocalypse it's not interested in violent endings and and by the way uh, it's not just one ending there's multiple endings going on because i don't think this thing stops so i'm just hesitant with all that and i'm hesitant i'm really fascinated and i still have more work to do on this by the way even after i did this work i'm really fascinated with the way gerard he kind of he kind of in my opinion, and I don't mean, I mean, I mean nothing compared to who Rene Girard is. So for whatever it's worth, in my opinion, he kind of gets mired down into exclusive apocalyptic kind of thinking. And well, that's, honestly, that's why I found when you first pitched your book to me, I found it so fascinating because I'm like, how in the world is he going to reconcile Girard's strong sense of apocalypse yeah. with Whitehead's notion of, you know, a uh, completely open-ended, you know, non- right. uh, uh you know non-coercive right. divine I'm, I'm like the i don't have the imagination to put those together so i want to see what this guy does <laughs> yeah yeah well i'm a better writer than i am a talker about this so i hope i hope folks will read it and that's not just a ploy to get them to to buy the book oh I, pl I plug away man plug away <laughs> i think that, that... Why, why else do we do podcasts right 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 <laughs> So I think I do it better on paper, but you're absolutely right. They, they they run smack into each other. And so I had to, it took me a while to get the courage up. But um, but in particular, after I met my new friend, one of my new friends, Rebecca Adams, who has done work on positive mimesis and folks like that, James Allison helped me a, a little bit too. Um, it gave me the tools, the courage, and and maybe a slight bit of insight to say, I love Gerard, but sometimes, yeah, the way he ends up, and even his last book, the last book he wrote was all about um, studying, um, oh, the guy's name escapes my mind, but who was a great war 
general and a war theorist, theorist. And I've thought to myself many times the last few years, gosh, I wish Rene Girard's last book had been about like Mother Teresa or Dorothy Day right, or right. any number of people like, I mean, who am I to say such a well, thing? Was but, it about Clausewitz? Yeah, that's the guy. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. I, I'm sitting here. I'm like, Rauschenbusch? No, that's somebody Klausowitz, else. Clausewitz, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Clausewitz, yeah. <laughs> and he's really enamored with him. And, he, and uh, you know, as Gerard does, he has some brilliant insight and insight I would have never gotten to. But it's, to me, it's just kind of weird how it's all wrapped up in apocalyptic thinking of war and violence. And there's still this idea at the end for Gerard, that even though he doesn't always come out and say it, that God might like step in and fix everything, which then is contradictory to a, a mimetic universe because it doesn't really align with this whole relational cosmos. That is that I don't think that anyone can single-handedly do much of anything. So I will say, probably rambling a bit, I, w- I will say I had to gain the courage to use open relational theology to, I hope, clarify Girardian thinking, but but previous to that, I tried to use Girardian thinking and insert it into some of Whitehead's stuff about religion that I thought was um, missing it, not missing it, but wasn't the full picture. So I feel like I kind of did. I feel like I kind of did both. And anyhow, I think I write about it better than I talk about it. Yeah. Me. Yeah. I mean, and if you, if you allow the metaphor, I mean, I think that Whitehead definitely situates Girard more than Girard situates Whitehead in this book. There you go. Say, say that again. I think that uh, Whitehead situates Gerard more than Gerard situates Whitehead in this book. Yeah, 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 I think so. So, yeah. All right. So that was uh, lexical question number one. Lexical question number two. I'm going to end with three Mm -hmm. word questions. Okay. Um, At several points in this book, you call on people to evolve religiously. Now, I've said before that I'm not nearly as well versed in Whitehead as I am in Gerard, but the notion of evolution that I picked up studying biology is that evolution names non-teleological changes to alleles that, through sexual and natural selection, become dominant in a population. Now, those aren't moral categories, and those aren't aspirations. And in fact, when something becomes intentional, my biology teachers taught me not to call it evolution at that point because something else was happening. Some other meaning of evolution is governing that noun and its related verbs in this book, So tell our listeners about what it means to aspire towards evolution. Interesting. My first question is, I wonder why your biology teacher felt compelled to say that if it's intentional, it can't be evolution. Like where did he or Uh, she? Largely because of all of the uh, mutations and all of the changes in populations that don't end up being the best fit to the environment and to the, uh, you know, the moment, so to speak, in the process of ecological interactions between populations and meteorological conditions and food supplies and whatnot. So, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, if it were intentional, the way I was taught, uh, then it is, you know, something that is, uh, well, I mean, it's something that comes from an agent rather than being simply material motion. Right. So does, does that distinction between action and motion make some sense? Yeah, well, and I'm just pushing back. And, and, on I'm, and I'm sure I didn't have this vocabulary when I was 17. But right, that's right. how I think about it in my memory now that I'm 45. Trust me, <laughs> I didn't have this vocabulary when I was, you know, 37. So it didn't matter. Um, let alone in biology class, I barely passed. No, I, I was <laughs> I was just pushing back against. I just find that interesting. I do think that that's true. I do think that biologists in general want to say they want to distance, you know, intentionality from evolution for sure. And um, I think that, well, I mean, that seems to be what's going on in Darwin, isn't it? I think so. But I think that there's room to say that um, there may be some intentionality. It just, um, you know, it, it, we, fact, we have to factor it a little bit, some things in a little bit differently than we've been taught. And I, I'm, sus- I'm suspicious that the uh, Darwinists or the biologists or whomever, the classic scientists want to say that so that they just don't have to ask the God question. They just don't have to ask the divine question. There's no intentionality. It's just this random, complete mess. By the way, they might be right. I just don't think, I think there's ways to look at it. And let me, I'll try to explain um, because it's part of the way I'm using the word evolution. I think, first of all, I probably use evolution 
a colloquially just kind of like, hey, we need a change, you know, in religion. Um, so I probably a lot of people agree with that. But then I'm also trying to tap into where I think Whitehead is going with this. And um, I, I struggled with this for a while trying to figure out what I thought Whitehead's idea. So Whitehead's like one of his famous phrases about religion is that religion is world loyalty. It's a really fascinating thing, but it totally contradicts what religion is for Girard. For Girard, religion is violence and scapegoating and maintaining, you know, the order and processing of violence. So I had to, as I mentioned earlier, kind of use one to unpack the other. But for Whitehead, the way he gets there is he talks about um, in evolution, you know, things change. So we have we have new stuff, but the classic way this is presented to us, it doesn't it doesn't give us any reason why the adaptation takes place. It kind of tells us how it takes place, but there's no like why it takes place. And so um, Andreas Wagner has a book. The title of it is taken from a guy by the name of Hugo de Vry, and it's called um, Arrival of the Fittest. So the difference between survival of the fittest and arrival of the fittest, like, you know, science tends to explain what is happening and maybe how the, the arrival, excuse me, the survival. Um, I think there's something else that might begin to explain the arrival. Why do things adapt? And so Whitehead kind of says something like, um, you know, why would this happen? So, so he inserts evolution as a question. So there's a possibility of something. And if there's a possibility of something, that for him is a, is a possibility of value. And like things could be better or worse. Um, and if there's value, that value has ex existed and it comes from somewhere. And this is where he kind of gets into a little bit of platonic eternal forms, kind of similar to this value that's always existed. And for him, he just kind of backs it up as I understand it, and, and thinks that the ultimacy all comes from a divine agent that is luring and inviting, you know, value and possibility and is working its way into biology and the physicality and chemistry and all these, you know, quantum mechanics, all these interesting things. So I'm using evolution in that sense, I hope, and, and saying that there is a question of love, there's a question of value that seems to me that has been infused into the heart, the DNA of the universe, and everything is responding to it. You know, I'm looking outside at you know the trees right now. I think they're re I, I think they're responding to uh, to love, um, but it's in a also, in a, also a very platonic notion, by the way. The there you rolling. go. <laughs> there you go. Lo I love it. You know. Uh, but it's in a very tree form kind of a way, you know, and, and I'm responding to love by entering in to the questions that have been posed into my life, like these deep, massive, very personal, intimate questions. And, and I'm responding to those questions and value and possibility and trying to come up with new things. And it's pushing me forward to come up with new thoughts and ideas. And it's changing my surroundings and my context. And by the way, you know, whole another thing, I think it's changing God to some degree, too, as God interacts at least that's a very process, open and relational thing to think. Um, my life's not the same as it was before. It, it's been messy. There are some things, some ideas I had didn't work, but other ideas seem to work better. And there's fruit that comes from that. And there's other things that die. So when I talk about evolution, I'm trying to conjure up all that stuff and say all that messy, beautiful, good movement. It's a part of the, our world and it's a part of our psycho-spiritual construct as well. Something something like that. Very good, very good. The, these are tough concepts to reconcile. Yeah. Like I said, honestly, yeah. that that's why when your email came to us, I said, I gotta read this book. This guy, I, you're like, like, this guy this, is crazy. No I, way. That's yeah. exactly what I thought. I said, this yeah. guy's gotta be nuts if he thinks he can bring these things together. But you gave it a heck of a try. You gave it a heck of a uh, shot. But here's my third terminology question. I wanna loop right. back to the book's title. Okay. When I see the noun consent in your mm -hmm. book's title, the associations that I immediately make are either Title IX regulations, because I'm one of my college's Title IX hearing panel members, or I associate it with the moral philosophy of Peter Singer, whose work hinges on notions of consent. It seems like your use of consent is, you know, has family resemblances to those. 
but it's doing different kinds of work in theology. So uh, as we, you know, are approaching the end of our conversation here, tell our listeners what that noun consent means in this book. Yeah. I realized pretty late in the game that uh, Simone Weil, another French intellectual, uh, wrote an essay called The Theology of Consent. It's part of the reason why I just went with Theology of Consent, because right. I'm I said, if you're looking for the theology of consent, you should read Simone and and not me. Um, But she has this great quote, something like, um, God does no violence to secondary means as he works at his will. Um, It's something like that. I just messed up the quote, but something to to the effect that for God to get, for things to happen as the divine wants to happen, violence doesn't need to take place. God's not interested in that. Now, violence does take place because God doesn't control. And so I realized that that thinking, which by the way, probably has influenced Brad Jerzak some. Brad Jerzak, his work has influenced my stuff some. And I just thought it was interesting how in a roundabout way I was finding out about that at the end. Consent to me is this very powerful characteristic of love that seems to be at the center of all the really interesting questions about control and domination and agency and autonomy. And the older I get and the further I step into love, the more I interact with my own uh, boys and young people in my own church. And the more I want to esteem them and honor them and to tell them that I really, I really, Sorry, like I, I really believe in them. And I, I think, I, I suspect that God really believes in us too. I, I just, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't, I'm not sure why I just got emotional with all that. Probably just thinking of my boys. It's, it's theology. It gets it's theology. emotional. That's right. Yep, yep. And, and just thinking of the young people in my life who've, who are under so much pressure to conform to particular things. And for many of them, not all of them, I don't want it to be a, over a caricature that religion has been a lot of baggage for them. But for many of them, it has. It's like one more thing, set of things that they have to do. I don't think it, I don't see it that way any longer. I think consent is at the heart. I think the entire cosmos might revolve around consent, around this beautiful way that love forms and reforms and becomes so small at times. We don't even know it's there. I think it's Carl Jung forgive me if it's not him, maybe someone else says, we miss God because we don't look low enough. You know, we're constantly looking at the big and the person who's in charge and on top. And um, I want our young people in the next generation, I want my generation, I want myself to be honored and esteemed and to have a choice in the matter and to wrestle with these things. So um, yeah, consent is a really important thing to me. It's gracious, it's gentle, it refuses to dominate. And it's something I think marked the life of Jesus. Jesus constantly is in this consensual relationship with the people around him and, and with his papa, you know, his father God. I, I find all of that too. So I love that whole idea. And I don't know how it connects with Singer or Title IX sometimes, but I have a sense that consent might be a huge answer for our world. Yeah, I got you. No, like I said, those are just my word associations. So like yeah. I said, I, I I read the title of your book and I wasn't interested at all. And then I read the description. I said, I've got to read this guy. So, I, <laughs> you know, that, that, that that's my story with it, right? I, hope, well, John- I like it. <laughs> well, Jonathan, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about Gerard, Whitehead, theology, or whatever else? as we head for the door. Well, thanks a lot for having me, man. And uh, that's kind of you to let me have the last word. I've probably used up all my words already. Um, You know, my main thing is just trying to um, excavate the depths and the mystery of love and consent, I think is a way to get to that. And I think Gerard in his own way, open a relational theology and in its own way, helps us do that. And so I would just encourage our listeners to, uh, to, to keep pursuing love. If you have a choice between 
truth and love, I bet you should go with love because love will probably wind up being the truth. And if you have a choice between God and love, I bet you should go to love because I bet that's where <laughs> I bet that's where the real God is. That's where my money is. That's what my money is on. It's on this like strange, irrepressible, patient, enduring, keeps no record of wrongs kind of agency that is, um, I think, in the process of healing the world, but wants to do it with us rather than for us. Jonathan Foster, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. The book is Theology of Consent from Sacrosage. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.